The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. Please note that this episode contains references to suicide. Across the US, intimate homicides account for approximately 9% of all murders nationwide. And while we hear accounts mainly of the cases involving victims that are women, violence against men and mariticide are quite often less talked about. Mariticide is the killing of one's husband, boyfriend or male intimate partner. And although a few cases have dominated headlines over the past 15 years or so, this has been due to the antics of the killer, while the victims of these cases remain relatively unknown. Good examples of this are the cases of Jody Arias, who shot and killed Travis Alexander on June the 4th, 2008, and that of Shayna Huber, who claimed self-defence after shooting and killing Ryan Poston in October of 2012. But there is one case that I recently came across that even I had never heard of before, and I wanted this man's story to be told. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host, Jasmine, and this is the story of Matthew Gailey. Born on the 3rd of April 1977 in Middleton, Orange County, New York, Matthew Ryan Gailey was the cherished son of Lynn and Frank Gailey and the much-loved older brother of Ariana. Ariana was born when Matt was 18 months old and the two were inseparable. As they got older, many believed they were twins. They shared the same group of friends and even graduated school together. As a child, Matt was described by his aunt Darlene as a little doll and just the sweetest kid. He had a fascination with airplanes and dreamed of becoming a fighter pilot. And in high school, he was a member of both the wrestling and football teams and caught the eye of many girls. Ariana recalls fondly that she used to be annoyed when her girlfriends would come over to hang out with her brother instead of with her. Matthew, however, never pursued his dream of becoming a fighter pilot but found a job he loved when he was offered the position of a prison guard in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Wilkes-Barre is a city in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and is part of Luzerne County. Located at the centre of the Wyoming Valley and framed by the picturesque Pocono and Endless Mountains, which is approximately two hours west of the Gailey family home. Despite the distance, the family remained in constant contact and Ariana was one of the first to hear when Matt met and fell in love with Jessica Alinsky in the summer of 2009. Jessica Lynn Alinsky was born on October 8, 1983 in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. After graduating from Ashland High School in 2002, Jessica moved to nearby Hazleton where she secured a job with an Eagle Rock real estate agency. Jessica was described as being like the girl next door. She was bubbly and fun and had a beautiful smile. Wilkesbury and Hazelton are approximately a 35-minute drive apart, and Matthew and Jessica met when Matt was searching for a new property to rent. Several months after meeting, the new couple signed a two-year rental agreement on a lovely log cabin-style home on Muskegon Circle, located in the middle-class upscale gated community of Eagle Rock Resort. 
Eagle Rock Resort covers approximately 5,000 acres just outside of the Hazel Township. Its many amenities include two golf courses, several outdoor pools, a lake with its own beach, a restaurant, playgrounds, a basketball court and many scenic walking trails. It is maintained by the Eagle Rock Community Homeowners Association and has 24-7 around-the-clock gated security. Matt loved the serenity of his new home and during his days off would either hire a boat and head out on the lake or indulge in a round of golf. But it didn't take long for him to confide in Ariana that his relationship with Jessica was a bit strained. He told Ariana that Jessica was a very intense person, which conflicted with his own laid-back and easygoing nature. And Ariana witnessed firsthand what Matt meant in early July 2010. Upon hearing that his mother Lynn was terminally ill, Matthew returned to New York to be with his father Frank, sister Ariana and his little niece Kaylin, as they maintained a bedside vigil at the Good Samaritan Hospital where Lynn Gailey sadly passed away on Saturday the 3rd of July 2010 at the age of just 59. During the final few days of his mother's life, Matt never left her side, soaking up as much of those last precious moments as he could. Returning to their father's home after their mum had passed away, Ariana and Matt were comforting each other when Matt realised he had dozens of missed calls and voice messages from Jessica. Ariana recalled how one voice message would be caring and sweet, with Jessica letting Matt know that she was thinking of him, and the next would be filled with anger and hate, Jessica screaming and crying and demanding for Matt to come home. For the next year, Matt struggled in his relationship and eventually decided that when the lease was up on the house, he was going to move out and find his own place to live. Jessica's behaviour was becoming more and more erratic and one prior incident had Matthew concerned about just what Jessica was capable of. In the early hours of March 2011, Matt had returned home from work to find the house ransacked and Jessica in hysterics. She told Matt that she had come home to find an intruder in their home, who had fled through the basement door before disappearing into the surrounding woods. Matt wasted no time in contacting the community security department, who in turn contacted the Pennsylvania State Police. Forensic investigator John Corrigan was the responding officer and after taking a statement from Jessica and after processing the scene, he found nothing to support Jessica's claims of an intruder. There was no entry point, no fingerprints, nothing was stolen and the community's many security cameras picked up nothing. And although forensic investigator Corrigan remained suspicious, the report was filed but Matthew couldn't shake the feeling that Jessica had made this whole thing up for attention. But what both Matthew Gailey and investigator Corrigan couldn't have known was just how correct their feelings were. And exactly six months later, when investigator Corrigan was called back to that same house, he stepped into a totally different crime scene, one that immediately filled him with dread. At 11.47pm on Friday the 2nd of September 2011, a frantic 911 call was made. 27-year-old Jessica Alinsky screamed to the dispatcher that her boyfriend had shot himself in the face. At nine minutes past midnight in the early hours of Saturday, September the 3rd, first responders arrived on the scene and 34-year-old Matthew Ryan Gailey was pronounced dead. The first officers to arrive on the scene were Trooper James Sermick, 
the then criminal investigator for the Pennsylvania State Police, and Trooper Sean Williams, closely followed by forensic investigator John Corrigan. All three were responding to a suicide call and arriving at the property, they found Jessica Alinsky standing outside on the first floor wooden decking, leaning against the railing and clearly distressed. Trooper Williams remained with Jessica on the porch while investigators Sermig and Corrigan entered the home. Upon opening the door, investigator Corrigan had the overwhelming sense of deja vu, except this time, in the middle of the chaotic scene before him, lay the body of Matt Gailey. Both Sermig and Corrigan immediately noticed evidence that conflicted with the suicide report. They backed out of the house, cordoned it off, and contacted the then Luzerne County District Attorney, Jacqueline Musto Carroll, and raised their concerns. DA Carroll then contacted Assistant District Attorney Daniel Zola and assigned him to the case. Within hours, Assistant DA Zola was at the Muskegon Circle residence where he was met by Investigator Corrigan and by this time Jessica Alinsky was at the station giving a statement to Troopers James Sermick and Sean Williams. Daniel Zola, who is now Luzerne County's Deputy District Attorney of Narcotics, is a lifelong local to the area. He attended Hazelton High School, got his undergraduate degree from King's College in Wilkes-Barre and obtained his law degree from the Widner University of Law in Harrisburg and at the time of Matt's death had served as Luzerne County's Assistant District Attorney for six years. DA Zola had attended hundreds of murder scenes in his career and he knew that this was one more. Climbing the outside steps up to the first floor decking, it was noted that two handsets for a cordless landline phone were resting on the railings, both smeared with blood. The curtains and blinds covering the windows and the front door were drawn, but the light inside was on. The front door, which is accessible from the deck, opened into the home's living room. Directly to the left of the door was a light brown plush three-seater sofa, placed directly under the front window and beside that in the corner was a wooden dining chair next to a small table, and in front of the sofa was a glass-topped wrought iron coffee table. Covering the seating area of the sofa was a green and white blanket, and DA Zola and Investigator Corrigan were quick to take note of a massive pool of blood located on the far end of the couch, which had soaked through the blanket and into the cushion to a depth of approximately three quarters of an inch a clear indication that someone had bled there for some time. On the floor between the far end of the couch and the coffee table lay the body of Matthew Gailey, his knees pretty much in line with the pool of blood on the sofa. He was lying on his back wearing a t-shirt, white socks and satin boxer shorts that had hearts and the word love printed all over them. His head was resting on the rung of the wooden chair that was in the corner and his left arm was straight down and positioned at approximately a 45 degree angle from his body. His hand was palm up and his index finger was resting on the trigger of a pistol that he owned. Between his hand and the end of the coffee table was a blood-soaked striped towel, the gun resting slightly on top of the edge of it. Between his arm and his body was a torn-up bank statement smeared in blood, and near it, partially under the coffee table, was an opened accordion-style document folder. Opposite the sofa was a brick-surround fireplace, and to the left of that was an entryway that stepped up into the kitchen. Between the fireplace and the coffee table, there were pieces of a vase or ornament that had been smashed, and the glass top of the coffee table had been knocked slightly away from its base. Making their way into the kitchen, DA Zola and Investigator Corrigan 
found a framed photo of Matt and Jessica in the black plastic trash bin beside the kitchen bench. The bin was filled to the top and this holiday snap in its souvenir Myrtle Beach frame was resting right on top. And after speaking with Matt and Jessica's neighbours, they were able to conclude that a single gunshot was heard at approximately 11.30pm, at least 15 minutes before Jessica had placed her 911 call. Meanwhile, back at police headquarters, Jessica was giving her statement to investigator Sermic and Trooper Williams. Dressed in her bright pink fleece dressing gown covering a black singlet and pyjama shorts that she wore underneath and wearing her black Mary Jane sandals, Jessica was a hot mess. Her bleached yellow blonde shoulder-length hair was roughly parted in the middle and pulled back away from her face, with about an inch of natural light brown hair showing through. Her face, hair and hands were streaked in blood and she was unable to stop the tears from flowing. Through these tears, she told Sermic and Williams that prior to the shooting, she had been out at the local pub having a few drinks after work with her colleagues. Upon arriving home, she claimed that the two got into an argument about money, saying that Matt was angry that she had gone out for drinks when they were strapped for cash. As their argument became more verbally abusive, Jessica said she went upstairs to get away from Matt and to allow him to calm down. While she was upstairs, she began changing out of her work clothes when she heard a bang. Running downstairs, she found Matthew lying on the floor, covered in blood. She described how she tried to hold his head up to stop the blood from coming out, but realised it was no use and rushed to call 911. She claimed to have never moved Matt's body besides trying to hold his head up and was adamant that she had never touched or moved the gun. As the interrogation progressed, Jessica slowly began changing her story. She began describing how Matthew was physically pushing her around when her earlier claims were that the argument was only verbal. As Jessica once again started to become hysterical, investigator Sermic and Trooper Williams suspended the interview. Before she left, she was asked to undergo a gunshot residue test, then was photographed and her clothing was taken into evidence. After getting some rest themselves, Sermic and Williams then drove the two hours east to Frank Gailey's house to inform him that his oldest child and only son was dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot to the face. It was then up to Frank to inform his daughter Ariana of the horrific news. When asked whether Matt would kill himself, both answered with a definite and firm no, with Ariana insisting that suicide was not in Matt's nature. Less than 12 hours after his death, Matthew Gailey's body was being examined by one of Luzerne County's top coroners, Dr William Lisman. Coroner Lisman's autopsy report determined that the bullet had entered Matthew's upper lip just below his left nostril. It had travelled from front to back in a trajectory that was slightly upward and to the right. There was no exit wound and a lead bullet and jacket were recovered intracranially. Matt's brainstem had been transected, ensuring immediate loss of consciousness, with death following quickly thereafter. There was no gunshot residue on Matt's hands, and both hands and forearms were void of the usual telltale blood splatter that is often found on suicide victims who have ended their life by gunshot. The stippling on Matt's face was found central travelling from his top lip to his forehead, consistent with the upward trajectory, and the range of the stippling indicated that the muzzle of the gun was approximately five inches away from his face. 
Coroner Lisman's report concluded that the distance and location of the gunshot wound was extremely unusual in suicides and that the nature and circumstances surrounding the shooting were, in his opinion, extremely suspicious and suggested that a thorough police investigation was imperative. Unable to conclusively say that Matthew's death was or was not consistent with a suicide, his manner of death was listed as undetermined. Matthew Gailey's body was then released to his family and taken back to Orange County, New York, in preparation for his funeral. The following day, on Sunday the 4th of September, Jessica Alinsky was back in the interview room with both Sermic and Williams. This time she was composed and calm, her previously messy hair now washed, straightened and framing her pretty face. She sat with her left arm resting on the interview room table and her right hand was kept busy with her chain smoking, clearly ignoring the no smoking sign on the wall opposite. When asked whether she killed Matt, she responded with no. Sermic and Williams then put forward some of the conflicting evidence such as the test that found gunshot residue on her hands and on the black singlet she was wearing under her pink dressing gown. And once again, Jessica changed her story, eventually settling on the following version of events. Jessica claimed that after returning home from the pub, she got changed before her and Matt got into a physical altercation in the living room. Matt had begun pushing her around before he picked up his gun from the nearby table and threatened to shoot himself. A frightened Jessica, who was standing beside the coffee table with her back to the sofa, then raised her hands and covered her face. It was at this point she claimed that Matt stood behind her, bringing his right arm up and around her raised arms, pointed the gun at his face and fired. Matt instantly hit the floor with his head resting up on the green and white blanket that covered the sofa. She told Sermic and Williams that she then ran upstairs to get a towel before returning and moving Matt's body to the floor in an attempt to stop the bleeding. She then admitted to moving the gun in the process, but couldn't explain how it had ended up in his left hand. When asked why she didn't call 911 straight away, she said that it was because she was in shock and it took her those 10 to 15 minutes to realise what she needed to do. While this in itself is suspicious, everyone acts different when faced with something traumatic and the way someone acts under these type of circumstances should not be taken into consideration when determining their guilt or innocence. Upon hearing Jessica's new version of events, Assistant District Attorney Daniel Zola dispatched the forensic services team out to Orange County to obtain the measurements of Matt's chest and arm length before he was interred. These measurements showed Matthew's arm to be of normal length, and DA Zola was quick to find two troopers who fit the dimensions of both Matt and Jessica in every way. The female trooper was positioned in the same way that Jessica claims to have been in, with her hands up covering her face, and the male trooper positioned himself behind her, bringing his right arm around and across hers in an attempt to point the gun at his own face. And while this was possible if both were positioned at an awkward angle, matching the exact position that the gun would have had to have been in proved to be impossible. This, however, was still not enough for the coroner to rule Matt's death as a homicide and after a year, the investigation stalled. But Trooper Sermic was determined not to let this case go cold and approached Assistant District Attorney Daniel Zola about the possibility of calling a coronial inquest. DA Zola was instantly intrigued. A coronial inquest is an investigative tool that he personally knew very little about. He had never been part of one and had never witnessed one taking place. 
In fact, it had been over 17 years since one was called in Luzerne County. A coronial inquest is like a mini-trial, where a six-person jury is selected to hear evidence and the coroner presides over it like a judge would in a criminal trial. For this case, the jury would have to decide two things, the first being whether Matthew Gailey's death was a homicide, and if so, did Jessica Alinsky kill him? It is the six-person jury who ultimately decides on the final outcome, and the final outcome in this case was to find out whether or not to indict Jessica for the murder of Matt. But these types of inquests come with a big risk. If the jurors were to determine Matt's cause of death to be a suicide, it would be the end of the investigation. When approached by DA Zola, Matt's family didn't have to think twice about it. They were eager to get the investigation moving again and knew the jurors would be able to see exactly what they could, that Jessica Alinsky had shot and killed their beloved son and brother. In July 2013, nearly two years after he died, the inquest into Matt's death was opened. Assistant District Attorney Daniel Zola laid everything he had on the table. Not only did he have to prove to the jury that Matt's death was a homicide, he also had to prove that Matt was not suicidal. To do this, he had ordered a psychiatric autopsy to be done on Matt. Along with the coronial inquiry, a psychiatric autopsy was another relatively unknown tool to utilise. A psychiatric autopsy relies on medical records, extensive interviews with the decedent's family, friends, co-workers and acquaintances, as well as a deep dive into their life to help to determine whether that person was prone to suicide. In the months leading up to the inquest, a renowned psychiatrist spent hundreds of hours undertaking this extensive and complex task, and in the end, his report found that Matthew Gailey showed no signs that he wanted to take his own life, and noted that he displayed none of the characteristics of a suicidal individual. As well as all the other evidence, such as the body being moved, the gunshot residue that was found on Jessica but not on Matt, and the fact that the gun had been placed in his left and non-dominant hand, the jury also heard from Jessica's co-workers who said that when they were at the pub in the hours leading up to Matt's death, Jessica had become so intoxicated that she had actually been kicked out. One co-worker had driven her home and the security cameras of her gated community proved this. This co-worker claimed that on the drive home, Jessica had become hysterical, telling him that Matt was leaving her and she was still in this state when she exited the car and went inside. DA Zola also told the jury that the ripped-up bank statement found next to Matt's body was dated back to September of 2008, three years prior to his death. It was smeared with Matt's blood, as was the accordion-style document folder that the statement was assumed to have come from. If Matt had torn this up prior to his death, as Jessica claimed he must have, then how and why did his blood get smeared all over it? DA Zola also pointed out that Matthew's white socks had drops of blood on the tops of them, as well as an area of carpet just in front of the couch, suggesting that at the precise moment Matt was shot, there was nothing in front of him to stop the blood from falling directly down onto his socks and the carpet. Jessica Alinsky could not have been in the position she claimed to have been in. Jessica was called as a witness but did not answer any questions. After two days of hearing evidence, it took less than two hours for the six-person jury to rule Matthew Gailey's death a homicide and that it was Jessica Alinsky who fired the fatal shot. Finally, after almost two years, Matthew's manner of death on his death certificate 
was changed from could not be determined and was officially ruled as a homicide. The following day, Jessica Linolinsky was arrested at her current job as a dental technician and charged with both the murder of Matt and for tampering with evidence, to which she pleaded not guilty. And as Pennsylvania is a no-bail state for homicide, Jessica was to remain behind bars until her trial. But Jessica shocked everyone when nine months later her defence attorney Demetrius Fanick approached DA Zola with the request to start talks regarding a plea deal. Jessica eventually agreeing to plead guilty to third-degree murder, which carried a sentence of up to 40 years imprisonment, a sentence that the judge would decide upon and impose once her plea was signed off on. Under Pennsylvania state law, first-degree murder is the intentional killing of another, premeditated with malice. Second-degree murder covers murder which occurred in the course of committing a felony, such as burglary or car theft, and third-degree murder is listed as any other murder committed with malice. On April 2, 2014, Jessica entered the Luzerne County Courthouse in her orange prison jumpsuit, cuffed with a prison guard on either side of her, where she signed off on her guilty plea colloquy. But when confronted by the media just moments later, she announced that she was innocent and immediately withdrew her plea. Assistant District Attorney Daniel Zola had no choice but to take her to trial. While awaiting trial, recorded telephone calls between Jessica and her mother revealed Jessica's admission that the reported home invasion that occurred six months prior to Matt's death was staged by her. The whole thing had been a desperate attempt to draw Matt close to her once again, but this new revelation was ruled not admissible in court. On Monday the 1st of February 2016, jury selection began. A pool of 100 potential jurors were brought in instead of the usual 75. 36 of these were quickly dismissed, and by mid-afternoon a panel consisting of five men and seven women were selected and asked to return the following morning to hear their instructions and the opening statements. Heading into the trial, prosecutors knew that not only did they have to prove their case, but they also had to disprove everything that Jessica had said. To do this, DA Zola focused on all the forensic evidence they had gathered and called forensic investigator John Corrigan to the stand to explain the evidence they had against Jessica. Troopers Sermick and Williams were then each called to the stand to give a detailed account of Jessica's interviews and her many version of events. These versions were then compared to what the evidence found and with what forensics showed. For just under two weeks, Judge Tina Polachek-Gartley presided over the case before the jury retired on February the 12th to begin their deliberations. Within hours, they had their verdict and 32-year-old Jessica Linolinsky was found guilty of both third-degree murder and for tampering with evidence. On March the 22nd, 2016, Judge Tina Polachek-Gartley sentenced Jessica to a term of 20 to 40 years for the third-degree murder and three to six months for tampering with evidence. Jessica Linolinsky's appeal was denied in 2018, and she is currently serving out her sentence at Pennsylvania Department of Corrections Cambridge Springs facility. The funeral service for Matthew Ryan Gailey was held on Saturday, September the 10th, 2011 and he was buried beside his mother at the Wallkill Cemetery in Phillipsbury, Orange County, New York. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree.
All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the Crime Tree.